0: you're new here, uh, we are Redemption Church Arcadia. We are one church with seven congregations, and we are the Arcadia expression of that. And uh, what I want you to do right now, if you could, is just turn to Romans 7. We've been going through Romans since Easter, and uh, we're up in the middle of Romans uh, chapter 7 now. We'll look at verses 7 through 14 today. And, uh, uh, really, uh, as I mentioned last week, this is a continuation of what we talked about last week, verses 1 through 6, and it is also going to serve as the platform for what we talk about next week when we, when we look at verses 13 through 25. Uh, verses 13 and 14 overlap a little bit with both weeks, but uh, it's all sort of one continuous argument, and so I would encourage you, if you miss any one of these three weeks, to go and download the, uh, the uh, sermon from our website uh, so that you can kind of fill in the gaps there. Uh, As you're turning to Romans chapter 7, let me just fill you in on a couple of other things that are happening in our community. There's a lot going on. Uh, First of all, when you came in uh, this morning, you were handed, along with your bulletin, this card every year during Advent, which would be those uh, four weeks leading up to uh, Christmas, so that starts December 1st. uh, We give you an opportunity to give uh, above and beyond your normal giving to Redemption Church in a way that we can... Uh, that we can help our community uh, both locally in our neighborhood, but also our faith community. Last year what we did was, uh, along with um, all of the other Redemption churches, we gave money towards buying a tractor for the refugee community here in uh, Phoenix, and we were able to do that. Uh, This congregation here... Which is remarkable for our size of congregation compared to the sizes uh, of, of the rest of the congregations. We gave $10,600 last year during Advent uh, toward that $60,000 tractor, which is really awesome. We were able to buy that for them. We've shown you a video of it. They've, they've been able to start farming and, and all that stuff. It's great. Um, This year, we wanted to give you uh, uh, some different opportunities to be able to give, and they're spelled out on this card. Uh, One of them is is, uh, for our new Redemption Foster Care and Adoption program that that we introduced in August and September that many of you know about. Uh, We want to build up that fund there to help people with uh, foster care and adoption, uh, and not just foster adoption, but all kinds of uh, adoptions. As, As God has adopted us, we also are... Are in the adoption business as well. And so we want to be able to help families with that. Uh, We also are going to help the First Way Pregnancy uh, Centers as well. Uh, They're having one of those baby bottle drives, and uh, many of you have been exposed to that before. You take a baby bottle home and you throw your change or your your money in there that doesn't make any noise. You can e- even put checks in there as well, and you collect that over the course of uh, December, and then bring it back uh, for them uh, as well. And then, um, if but if money is not uh, your deal uh, during Advent, if you want to give items, we also have a way to do that uh, for the refugee. Uh, Women's Health Clinic. You can also give items and those items are listed on the burgundy backside of that card And we're going to be talking more about this in the weeks to come uh, But please take this card and be praying about how you can uh, Give and and help with those items as well. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks Uh, The last thing that I want to mention before we dive in is is, uh, we are having, again, as usual, a Thanksgiving Eve service, which will be a week from this Wednesday night. It'll be from 6 to 7. We're going to have light food here for you to eat. We're going to have a little bit of uh, singing and music. Uh, Sean Myers is going to do something, as he always does, uh, and and that's a big draw for everybody. Ooh, the Sean thing. And And then we'll also have time for people to be able to share reasons why they're thankful. So uh, please plan on coming uh, to that as well. Uh, and now we're going to get into the middle of Romans 7, but bef- before we do, I just ask that we would uh, stop and, and uh, just take a minute to pray and, and reflect on how God might open our hearts and our minds for what he has to say uh, to us this morning. Uh, Holy God, we are so thankful for who you are. And, and although we don't always act like we're thankful for who you are, in fact, we we bristle against your sovereignty and your, and your power and, 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 and try to claim that for ourselves in so, many, in so many ways. Even though we do that, we know that through Christ, you have saved us, you have justified us, and you have made us righteous, and so we're thankful for that. And because of that, we love you and we praise you and we worship you. And, and so this morning, as we proclaim the gospel, the good news of your Son, and as we teach your word, our prayer is that all of our hearts and our minds would be open to what you have to say to us. If this is new to us, we pray that your Holy Spirit would change our heart and that we would come after Christ. And if this is not new to us, but this is, uh, we've, we've already been saved and we've been, we've been made righteous and we have been justified. Even then, in that, I just pray that, that your Spirit would work in fresh ways in our hearts today. That you, that you would... Uh, that you would wake us up to your truths and to the application of your word into our lives and to the gospel into our lives. And so, God, I pray that you'd bless us as we do this. As always, we ask that you would be the one that gets all the glory and that I would be moved out of the way so that you could speak this morning, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, Romans 7. Again, we are dealing with a question uh, as uh, just... Starting in chapter 6, we've been dealing with these questions that Paul asks because he assumes that people are going to ask these questions because he knows that people are going to push back against the things that he presents. And so we do that again today. Today, the question is about the law. And so we start in verses 7 and and the first half of 8. We'll start by unpacking that. And Paul says, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? Is there something wrong with the law? And his answer to this is, by no means, of course not, inconceivable. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I want to stop here and make sure we understand how Paul is using the word sin in this context. He's not saying that if it hadn't been for the law, he wouldn't have known that his behavior was bad. He's not talking about how sin manifests itself in behavior that is wrong. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about his sin nature, who he is at his core, who you and I are at our core apart from Christ. We, we, are, we are part of the fall of Adam and Eve. We are part of original sin and we've been corrupted. And therefore, it is our nature. And so he's talking about, he, he, what he's saying is, I would not have known that I was a sinful person. Not that I behave in sinful ways, but that I am a sinful person had it not been for the law. For what I, I, would, have, I would not have known, what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. We're going to spend a lot of time on what that means there because it's not as simple as it seems right on uh, the surface. And then the first part of verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So let's just get started there. Because the law somehow produces and increases sin in us, is the law bad? Is the law sin? Is the law somehow to blame for our sin? Here we go again. Here's another, another way that people might actually blame something else for their sin. Now they're going, oh, wait a minute. Now we can blame the law. If the law is the one that makes me sin, then it's the law's fault. Paul says no to all of this. Instead, what he says is that the law has done its job. The law has actually done its job In and through all of these things that he's talking about. The title uh, of this message today, which all of the redemption churches are doing today, the title is The Purpose of the Law. So the purpose or the job of the law has been accomplished. And so our big idea for today has two parts. Here's the first part. Our sin produces sin. It's our sin nature that produces sin in us the law doesn't produce sin in us. It's not grace that makes us sin. Other people don't make us sin, although we're sure that that's not right in some cases. It's not our circumstances that produces sin in us. It is our sin in us that produces sin. So so the first part of our big idea is our sin produces sin. Here's the second part of the big idea. But the law also shows us our need. If it weren't for the law showing us our sin, it could never show us our need for Jesus, for the gospel. And so the law is actually good, even though it kind of sounds like it may not be. And I understand this can be challenging at times because the way Paul presents this, it's easy to read into it that maybe there's something wrong with the law, that the law is bad. And Paul says no, but he wants to go deeper on it. Now, I, I thought this was interesting The living Bible, which is actually a paraphrase of the Bible, not a real translation, but I think what they do with verse 7 helps us to get to that deeper idea of what Paul is getting at. So let me read verse 7 to you out of the living Bible's paraphrase. It says this, well then, am I suggesting that these laws of God are evil? Of course not. No, the law is not sinful, But it was the law that showed me my sin, showed me my nature of sin. I would never have known the sin in my heart, the evil desires that are hidden there, if the law had not said, you must not have evil desires in your heart. Isn't it interesting that their paraphrase doesn't even use the word covet? It's because they're trying to get at what's underneath this covetous nature that we have instead it says the law showed us that you have evil desires in your hearts and i want to also say here last week when we were talking about the law we said in this particular case those first few verses paul is not talking about the mosaic law per se he's talking about really any governing or moral law at that time But here he does narrow down and specifically talk about the Mosaic law, the law that he knew backwards and forwards as a Pharisee, as a student of Gamaliel. He's talking about that that law that we find in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You see, what he's saying is that the law defines sin, but because of our sinful nature, the law also provokes sin in us. It doesn't make us sin, but it provokes us. We talked a lot about this last week, but Paul goes deeper here, so we're going to talk about it even more this morning. Uh, Grudem says it really well. He says it this way. Confronted by the law, sin takes on the character of rebellion. Sin takes on the character of rebellion. And again, the way Grudem is using the word sin there is he's not talking about our behavior, he's talking about our nature. So confronted by the law, our sinful nature takes on the character of rebellion so that people enjoy transgressing the commands in order to demonstrate their independence. So there's how our nature gets translated into behavior. It's us trying to show our independence against God and against the law. So even Grudem says it. He says, he says when we're confronted by the law, we begin to rebel and we actually enjoy transgressing the commands in order to show us who we think is boss. Paul says it simply in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The power of sin is the law. He's not saying that sin is in the law. He's just saying that, it, here you go, had he, been, had he had access to this kind of language in the first century, he might have said it this way. The law sort of turbocharges our sin nature. It, it, just, it just adds a little something extra to it. Now, I've got a couple of other illustrations of how this works, and I'm going to dig in deep on these. Here's how Augustine describes this principle in in a passage from his Confessions, which he wrote in the late 4th century, more than 1,600 years ago. So they had the same problems then, too. We have the same problem today. This is nothing new. But listen to the way he describes it. It It is really magnificent how he does this. He writes this, There was a pear tree near our vineyard, laden with fruit. One stormy night, We rascally youths set out to rob the tree and carry our spoils away. We took a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough of the pears to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty of better pears at home. I picked these pears simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was, it that, <clears throat> what was it that I loved in that theft? Well, here's what I loved. I loved the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit freedom by doing what was forbidden. Let me just show you this. That's, that's, a, that's a great phrase. He said he did it so that he would have a maimed, counterfeit freedom. One of the reasons we sin, we sin and we've talked about this in weeks past, is we think that by sinning, we're gonna somehow uh, uh, gain freedom. It's an expression of our freedom, uh, an expression of our independence, and that we're truly free when we, when we manifest our sin. And he says, no, 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 no. You may think you're gaining freedom, but what you're gaining is actually a counterfeit freedom, a false freedom, a fake freedom. And not only is it a a counterfeit freedom, a fake freedom, but it's a maimed counterfeit freedom. It's a a counterfeit freedom that's been all beaten up and destroyed. This is beautiful writing here, and it, it expresses exactly what we're going for. He says, this is what I got. I might have a maimed counterfeit freedom by doing what was forbidden. And then he adds this, with, here you go, a dim similitude of omnipotence. I love that phrase too. There you go. I, I have to put it up here so you guys can see this. It's awesome. awesome. Okay, so what is, is omnipotent? All right, here you go. Let me ask this. Who is the only person anywhere in the universe that is omnipotent? God. All right, that's exactly right. So, when we sin, when we transgress the law, what we're doing is we're expressing, I want to be like God. I want to be God. Sounds like Genesis chapter 3. I want to be God. I want to be all powerful. That's what omnipotence means, all powerful. I want to have the power. But he says that really what I achieved was a similitude of omnipotence. Something, a similitude means vaguely familiar. Uh, vaguely familiar. I am so excited, okay? Can you tell? Vaguely similar. It means vaguely similar. So it's not even similar omnipotence or power, it's vaguely similar omnipotence. And then think about at that, it's not even vaguely similar, it's dim vaguely similar. It's awful. But this is what he got. And this is actually what he says he wanted. He said he wanted to be God. He wanted to be all-powerful. And then he ends his paragraph this way. The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Amen? And isn't it interesting? You you look at this, you read this, and you realize Augustine was was coming from a family that had means. They had their own pears at home. He didn't have to steal the pears to survive. He did it because the law inspired him. His sinful nature to do it. One more. I love how Kent Hughes sums up this principle. Now Kent Hughes is a 21st century Christian pastor and author. And he sums it up in a way that's not quite as erudite as Augustine. But you're going to really enjoy this. I guarantee you. He says it this way. Have you considered what would happen on Main Street of your town if one of the stores painted this sign on their window? you are forbidden to throw stones through this window. (laughs) He says, that window would not last 24 hours. And then he writes this. I love this sentence. He writes this. Every human law is to us like shaking is to a can of soda. Every human law is to us like shaking is to a can of soda. The carbonation is already there. Our sinful nature is already there, but the law comes along and shakes us up. It it, it gets us going. It it somehow inflames our passion for sin. And then verse 8, he says, sin, seizing an opportunity. That literally means to establish a base of operations. W- when the law came, sin was awakened. It's not that it wasn't there in the first place, but it becomes awakened and more powerful, and, and it seized an opportunity. It set up a base of operations, F.F. F. Bruce says, in man's soul, right in the gut of who you are. Now, and now, it's not that Paul didn't have a covetous nature before he was introduced to the law. That's not it at all. But it, rather, once he understood the law, he then knew he was a coveter, And it had the effect not of restraining him from coveting, but actually arousing him to covet even more. Now listen to what he says in the last half of verse 8, and then verse 9 and 10. If I could find... Here we go. Last part of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I'll I'll explain what that means in a second. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. So the very commandment that promised life became death for me. We'll get to that as well. But in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, he says sin lies dead. Again, it doesn't mean that sin was non-existent. It doesn't mean it wasn't there. It just means it was latent. In other words, it was, it was hidden from the self. We, we, we are sinful but very conveniently, we're able to hide it from ourselves, ignore it, or not be aware of it unless it gets pointed out. In other words, we, we overlook our sin prior to exposure to the law. When, when our oldest daughter, Shelby, was about six years old, she knew all of her numbers and all that stuff, um, for, whatever reason, I, for whatever reason, my wife, Jackie, when she'd have her in the car, started teaching her about speed limits and all that stuff. So she'd show her the sign on the side of the road, and then she showed her how the dashboard and the speedometer worked. Well, I didn't know that Jackie was putting Shelby through this training. And so the next thing you know, Shelby's in my car. She's sitting in her car seat. And I, and I noticed she's really intently looking out the window. And then she's looking at my dashboard. And the speed limit's 40. Suddenly, I'm going 43 in a 40. And she goes, Dad, you're breaking the law. You're going 43. I mean, she was on me just like, like that. See, I was... I was I was hidden from that sin. I was ignoring it. I was practicing selective exposure, as all you guys do. I was hidden from that sin, but then she points it out. And I'll tell you, when she pointed it out, it was interesting how it had the effect of me taking that speed from 43 to 47. It was just, it was just awesome. Okay? But that's kind, of, that's kind of what happens. It's hidden, and then we're exposed to it, And and then it makes us want to do do it more. Verse nine, Paul says, "I was once alive apart from the law." A better rendering of the Greek there was is this: "I was blissfully indifferent to my sin when I did not know the law. I was blissfully driving down the street until Shelby pointed out my law breaking." Now we've all had that experience. We're doing something wrong. We may not really know it's wrong. We might be practicing selective exposure. We might be ignoring it. avoid Whatever it is, we, we don't think about it until somebody points out that it's wrong. Hey, 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 hey. And even then, we often need instruction on why it's wrong. Okay, yeah, I know I'm breaking the speed limit. Why is that wrong, Shelby? Because if you get into an accident, I might die. Dad, that's why it's wrong. So we need instruction on why it's wrong. But then eventually what happens is we become aware of the fact that we're lawbreakers. And as Paul says, it kills us when that happens. And, and here's what he really means by that. A better rendering of that would be, it slays us. It pierces our hearts when we realize this. It slays us in the way that, let, let's say you stand up, and I, by the way, this is from past experience in my own life, you stand up and you declare something to be absolutely true. And then somebody comes along with, absolutely clear and compelling evidence to the contrary and you're wrong about that and you feel slayed by that That, that's what paul is talking about here it slays us but the effect again the effect is not always in fact it's not even often that after the being made aware and after the instruction that we stop the law breaking instead we often continue in in defiant rebellion and even maybe take it up a notch you see, pointing out and instructing on sin does not cure sin. We can point out sin all day long. It's not going to cure anybody of your sin. We, we can try to do behavior modification, and it might work uh, to, to a small degree and for a short period of time, but that's not what Paul is going for here. You and I have a heart issue that only Jesus can solve. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the the world, do you submit to regulations? Things like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Laws are of no value in stopping us from indulging, from stopping us to sin. And so then verse 10, while it is true that the law promises life to those who keep the law perfectly, that's a reference to Leviticus 18.5, it is also true that no one can or has kept the law perfectly. And in fact, the law stimulates us to escalate our sin. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills, but it is the spirit that gives gives life. The letter, the law kills, but it is the spirit that gives life. Now I want to go a little bit deeper on this idea of coveting uh, within the context of these four verses. It's interesting that there are a number of people who read these verses here and they think that. While this may have been Paul's experience, he specifically cites coveting as his own experience, they think, well, that may have been Paul's experience, but that's not my experience. I'm, I'm not a coveter. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't wrestle with, with that at all. So I want to spend some time just kind of refuting how goofy that is, because it's much deeper than what you think is going on here, okay? So don't kid yourself. All of us are coveters, every last one of us. I want to give you some examples. And and here you go. Here's the first example. Do you think that there would be such a vibrant fashion industry if no one coveted? No way. Do, Do you know why the fashion industry is so profitable? It's partly because we're sinners. That's why. I used to be in the fashion industry. I know. If you can get people coveting, You can make a profit here's one that might cut in a different way would adultery be so common adultery or just sex outside of marriage any sex outside of marriage would that be so common if no one coveted the answer is no here's what we need to realize adultery and sex outside of marriage is so far less about sex than you'll ever realize yes It's partly about sex, but it's actually more about the desires of our hearts. It's about coveting. Sex is secondary to us coveting. That's why we are adulterers. That's why we engage in sex outside of marriage. Here's another one. This is the obvious one. Would there be so much dishonesty and criminal activity around money if it weren't for coveting? No. No. Now, here you go. Because you don't have time to do this, I did this for you. I compiled a short list of all the crimes that are related to just coveting money. This is a short list too. It's not even the long list. We don't have time for the long list. Here's a short list. This is just about money too. This is not about coveting other people or coveting power or coveting status or coveting comfort or any of those other things we covet. It's just about money. So here you go. Stealing, embezzling, fraud. Let me take a minute just to break down fraud a little bit further. There's credit card fraud, insurance fraud, mail fraud, investment fraud, computer fraud, healthcare fraud, social security fraud, welfare fraud, and expense account fraud. So we have stealing, embezzling fraud, robbery, burglary, blackmail, kickbacks, money laundering, kidnapping, forgery, racketeering, skimming, tax evasion, counterfeiting, extortion and identity theft. And that is the short list. Oh oh, but Pastor Frank, I, I don't covet. I, just, just save it for Oprah. OK? We are all covetors. We all covet. It is natural for human beings to want things. It is sinful, however, to want them in a way that dishonors God, dishonors others, and dishonors the created order. But that's just the surface stuff about coveting. I want to get at what Paul is really talking about here. We need to say this. Every sin listed in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, in the Old Testament, every one of them is mostly understood as being outwardly expressed. That's how we understand those sins. So adultery expressed outwardly, lying expressed outwardly, murder expressed outwardly, false worship, and we just went through that exercise for coveting, all the ways that we express it outwardly. But coveting is really a sin that is most focused on our inner life, our thought life, our nature, our hearts. It's not that it isn't expressed outwardly. It is, as we just showed. But to covet something doesn't, doesn't always mean that we're going to do something about it, yet it's still sin. Because it goes to our nature. It's clearly attached most directly to our inward life. This is why Paul uses coveting as his example. He doesn't just randomly pick an example. He picks the example that most clearly delineates and defines who we are at our core, our nature. And remember, he's the one who said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he's the foremost of sinners. So he's not just saying that when the law became manifest in his life, he discovered that he coveted things. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that when, when he was exposed to the law, he discovered he was sinful. That's what he's saying. I just discovered that my nature is that of sin. That he's filled with sin. He's racked with sin. And that's why the New Living Translation paraphrases verse 7 the way it does. Because it's not about coveting, it's about our evil desires. The law showed Paul who he really is. The law law defined Paul. The law defines you and me as well. And the law shows us that we can't do anything to fix this sinfulness because we can't keep the law. But it does point us to our need for a Savior. We're going to get to that. You see, no one can keep this law. So Paul uses coveting as his illustration because it most comprehensively shows everybody who we really are. We covet when we don't honor the Sabbath. You understand that? We we covet when we don't honor our family. We, We covet when we murder. And that's both physical murder and character assassination. We covet when we do that. We, we covet when we commit adultery. We covet when we steal. We covet when we're stingy and stubborn. We covet when we don't help those who need help. Guys, you covet when you won't let anybody else use the remote control. And we covet when we aren't truthful, when we bear false witness. And this command, it just goes right to our hearts. It goes to our souls. Watson writes this. Covetousness is a root sin when it is exercised fully it causes a breach in each of the other commandments. That's why this is Paul's example, which ties perfectly into what he writes in verses 11 and 12. Let me read those and then we'll dive into those as well. He writes, For sin, seizing an opportunity. Second time he said that in this passage. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's sin that killed me, not the law. Sin deceived me. And the reason sin deceived him and deceives you and I is because our hearts are wicked and deceitful beyond all of our comprehension and understanding, as Jeremiah writes in his book in chapter 17. Every one of us has been deceived by sin. Every one of us. Just like in the garden. I mentioned Genesis 3 earlier. I want to read Genesis 3, 1 to 6 to you. I do this probably three or four times a year, working it into the sermon, and here's why I do that. I'm telling you, it is so important to understand the first several chapters of Genesis because if you don't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and especially 3 where the fall happens, you don't understand life, you don't understand the nature of human beings, you don't understand sin, you're going to have a very hard time understanding the rest of the Bible and especially the New Testament and the New Covenant, and you don't understand who Christ is without this. It's really critical. And so chapter 3 of Genesis starts in the wake of chapter 2, verse 25, where it says that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It, what that statement is referring to is that, is that everything at that time, before original sin, was in perfect harmony. It wasn't, it wasn't just about physical intimacy, although that was a part of it. But it was really more about emotional and spiritual intimacy and harmony that was perfect. It was paradise. But then along comes chapter 3. Now the serpent, the adversary, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also to be desired to make one one wise. She took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Look at the end of of, uh, verse 5 there. For God knows, that this is the serpent saying this, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You will have a dim similitude of omnipotence. That's what he really should have said there. And and then so, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes. Again, her eyes. uh, That first one, that it was good for food, that it was pleasurable to her flesh. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, to make one like God, to know good and evil. There you go. That's how sin gets aroused in us. Satan comes along and he, and he just plants a little seed of doubt. He never gives us a full frontal attack. Most of us are actually ready for that. What we're not ready for is, is, is that little whisper in our ear that just plants a little seed of doubt. And then that starts the coveting. And, and the three things that are listed there, those are the things that make us covet the most. We love the glitter and the glitter. We love pretty things. We, we love eye candy. Uh, we I put up our Christmas lights on our house yesterday. I know it's a little early, but I've got busy stuff going on. I'm, my inner Clark Griswold was coming out of me, I, I, I think. But, but I got so much going on that this next several weekends I wouldn't be able to get them up. But I, I admit, I, even at 54 years old, I love it. I, I couldn't wait to turn them on at night when it got dark. And when I got back from running this morning, I just stood in the, in, in the street and looked at it. It's pretty. I like it. Oh, I want those lights. And now my neighbors are coveting our lights and it's awesome, you know? They're mad because we're the first ones. But then, but then it appeals to our flesh. It gives our, ple- our flesh pleasure. I had a Honeycrisp apple yesterday. Better than the one in the garden, I'm sure. It gave me great great pleasure it wasn't a sin but well maybe it was i bought it from aj's but anyway it was it was really good and it gives and it gives you pleasure and so you covet things that give you pleasure but most of all we covet things because we think it might make us free and like god those are the three things that get us and satan doesn't come and go bam he comes and he just whispers and we whisper these things to ourselves in verse 12 paul says no no It's not sin. I'm sorry, it's not the law. It's sin. And in verse 12 he says, because the law is holy. The law is holy. I told you last week that Paul would say this. And the reason it's holy is because God who gave the law and whose character it reflects and whose will it declares is himself holy. You cannot speak of the law as something bad without speaking of God as being bad. God's character is being revealed in the law. And so really, once we're in Christ, once we understand the true purpose and job of the law, the law now comes along and instructs us and helps us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. The law used to be an executioner. Now it's a gardener. It, It cultivates our life now. It used to slay us. Now it cultivates us. Once we are in Christ, the law is a wonderful guide. Prior to being righteous in Christ, however, the law merely antagonizes. Going back to uh, Sean Meyer's illustration several weeks ago, this was a brilliant illustration, I thought. He talked about, you know, let's say you break your leg. And because the broken bone is on the inside of your leg, you, you don't really know what's happened yet. You don't know for sure if it's broken. You know it's hurt. You know there's something wrong. And so what do you need? You need somebody to diagnose it for you. You need somebody to define it, to be able to tell you what it is. And so you go to the emergency room, and the doctors have tools there that help you do that. They have x-ray machines and MRIs. Can you imagine what it would be like to take away x-ray machines and MRIs from doctors? They would not. See, those, those x-ray machines and MRIs don't cure us but they point us to what the cure will be. They are tools that are used to diagnose the problem and point us to what will heal us. And that's exactly what the law does. It diagnoses the problem and it says, here's your need and it points us to the need. The law brings us to it, but then it pushes us away to Christ. That's what it needs to do. And so then he wraps up in verses 13 and 14. For today, anyway, he wraps up. And he writes this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and under sin. See, Paul repudiates any chance that sin is blamed on the law and not on the sin in us. In fact, he even says sin is so bad that it even uses that which is good to make something sinful. He, it, it uses the law. And Paul tells us that this process happens in order that sin would be recognized as sin. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying we don't necessarily not know that something isn't, is wrong. It's, it's not that we don't know that there isn't a problem. Our biggest problem, though, is that we don't understand how bad the problem really is. We don't understand just how awful sin really is. And again, by that I mean our nature, not our behavior. Sin is always much worse than we imagine. I would add also that we're also way more loved than we ever imagine. But sin is always much worse than we imagine. Sin is deceptive, it's comprehensive, it is relentless. In 1973, psychiatrist Carl Menninger, who was the founder of the famous Menninger Clinic, he wrote a classic book. It was a bestseller. It's, it's, people read it even today. It was called, Whatever Became of Sin? And his answer in that book was simple yet profound, and it was classically Romans, uh, Romans 6 and 7-esque in its theology. He said that in, in the last several decades, and remember he's writing this in 72, 73, and he says in the last several decades, society has taken sin and has begun and, and generated a total makeover of sin. In other words, it's like, it's like we took sin to a PR firm and we said we want image management for sin. We want sin to have a much better image than it does. And so first he says sin became a crime. It became, sin became something that we did in response to something else. Therefore, sin then became a symptom. In other words, sin became something that was external to us. And if it's external to us, then it's outside of our control. And therefore, sin became something that we're not even responsible for. And, and once you, you can make the argument that you're not responsible for any of your sin, then sin becomes excusable, acceptable, rational, and even laudable. By laudable, we mean that, that you would actually go and say that sin is good. Or you could make the argument that you're just a victim of sin. Have you noticed today that when somebody manifests horrible, awful, wicked sin... They have one of two flinches. One is to see themselves as victims. They're the ones that are committing the sin, but they see themselves as victims. Or what culture will do is culture will come alongside of those people and hold them up as heroes. That's the way our culture handles sin now. You're either a victim or you're a hero. Paul says, no, that is absolutely not right. Sin is our fault. He says, you own it. It's yours. The law may throw gas on the fire, but the fire is ours. And then verse 14 is all about how our living by the Spirit in righteousness is what happens to new creatures. We are now new creations in Christ. And that's really what we're going to talk about next week. The bulk of what we're going to talk about next week is that we're new creations. And understanding that God does not save anyone who is not new and therefore does not understand the old life and is capable empowered by the gospel empowered by the holy spirit to live the new life. Now I want to take like four more minutes to close because I want to come back and sew up something that I that I referenced earlier. We know that the law we've been pounding on this the last several weeks. We know that the law reveals and defines sin and that it provokes sin in us. We know that the law can't save anyone, that the law doesn't make anyone righteous. The law can't justify anyone. As a result, the practicality of the law is that when it enters our life, the law either pushes us to licentiousness, pushes us to libertinism, it pushes us to become the prodigal son, right? Or it pushes us to legalism. It pushes us to become legalists. It pushes us to become Pharisees. Now, in the the parable of the prodigal son, who was that? It's the older brother. See, Jesus wasn't telling that parable just to talk about salvation of the younger brother. He was also showing it, uh, telling that parable to talk about the hard-heartedness of the older brother who was living by the law and had become prideful as a result. So so the law pushes us to these two extremes, licentiousness or legalism, both of which are incorrect but by doing so the law shows us that we have a need. Licentiousness isn't the answer. Legalism isn't, isn't the answer. The only answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the answer to a really good question. How can we say that the law is good? The law is good because it exposes our sin as worse than we think it is and demonstrates that we can't do anything about it and by doing that, it sends us to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit opens our heart to coming to Jesus. Tim Keller writes this, without knowledge of our extreme sin, which would come from the law, without knowledge of our extreme sin, the cross of Christ seems trivial and neither electrifies nor transforms us. The cross of Christ should electrify and transform us. The law by inflaming our sin has the effect of bringing us to our knees about sin and shows us that we need a Savior and that is a good thing. And that brings us hope as we reach out to Jesus. And that's Paul's point at the end of verse 11. He says sin, seizing seizing the opportunity, deceived him and killed him. And so it's at at, at the end of verse 11 where Paul realizes that he's at the end of himself. He is now dead. And what can a dead man do? Nothing! And Christ invades his life and he is made alive by Christ. And so I'd ask you this morning, I know this room is filled with people whose lives have been made alive by Christ. You know Christ and you are righteous. and, And you are... You are here to understand how the gospel empowers you to live that righteous life. But today also I want to address those of you very clearly who do not know Christ. And I want to know is the spirit now opening your heart and opening your eyes to the reality that you are at the end of yourself and you need Jesus. He is the answer. He is the solution. He is what you've been looking for. And so I would encourage you that that, that sometime during the rest of this service or after the service, you get a hold of me, you get a hold of one of the Shans. All three of the Shans are here today. You can find them. You get a hold of the person that brought you here today. Or if you came here by yourself, find somebody. Go to the Connect desk and come to Jesus. You have a need. He is the answer and he brings you life. Let me pray and one of the Shans is going to come up and take us into our time of reflection and response. God, we thank you for the, for the truth of your word and the proclamation of your gospel and we are, we are privileged to be a part of that. So God, help us to understand what that means to us. Help us to embrace it. Help us to live by it. God, we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.